The reading's Romans 5, starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also Through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, the Bible. And we thank you for the presence of your own spirit here with us now to help us understand what it means. Help me to explain it clearly. Help us all to understand it and be willing to change our thinking and our lives in accordance with the truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you read the papers just about any day, you'd have to ask the question, is there any hope for humanity? I know that there are great things going on, there are wonderful things to celebrate, there are good things going on everywhere and uh, to enjoy, but nevertheless, the world seems to be consumed by greed and violence and injustice. And everywhere you see the effects of it, don't you, in nations and in communities, in families, and even in our own lives. There is conflict, there is pain, and there is despair. The world seems to be engulfed by sin. Sin seems to rule our planet. Anywhere you go, in different cultural ways, we find human beings in sin. It's not only sin, though, because... Death seems to rule as well. I mean, again, there are lots of wonderful people doing wonderfully energetic and lively and fit things and all the rest of it, 
except last Wednesday. But the rest of the time, they're doing good things, and we can celebrate those. But in the end, there's death, seems to claim us all. It's not even just some of us or most of us. It's every single one of us. And whether at the end of a long innings we die in comfort in our bed, surrounded by the ones we love, or whether we perhaps we, we die a bit sooner than everybody expected of a heart attack, or whether we're one of those faceless millions who've died of starvation or AIDS in Africa, we all die. So we can kind of frolic around as much as we like, but in the end, death gets us all. So it seems, doesn't it, that sin and death rule our planet. Anywhere you go, they are in charge. So when Christians start talking about, hey, we've got hope for the future, don't you find your friends who aren't believers look at you with that kind of scornful look? What are you talking about? You know, they have that look which seems like, um, what paper do you read? What world are you living in? I mean, of course we party like mad to try not to think about it, but in the end, this world is a place of sin and death. What is all this talk of hope? It sounds like a childish fantasy. Do grow up. Now I say that because the Apostle Paul has been speaking about hope in this letter. You may remember that he wrote this letter, late 50s AD, probably from Corinth, but to the Christians in Rome. He was planning to visit them on his way to Spain to preach the gospel in Europe. And he writes to persuade them that the whole world needs the gospel. So the book is all about the gospel of God. He's been explaining that this gospel of God is all about the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that this, this gospel is the power for salvation for anybody who will believe it and trust in it. Because in it is revealed the righteousness of God that everyone needs. You see, none of us has the righteousness that we need to live with God. We all fail morally in all kinds of different ways. We don't have the righteousness we need. But God has wonderfully made it available in Christ. Paul has shown that everybody needs it whether we're pagan or religious or Jewish or moral or whatever it is, everyone needs the righteousness of God that's been made available for us in Christ. And wonderfully, this, this righteousness is available, he said, simply by faith, simply by trusting in Christ. In fact, he's proved that that's always been the case, way back to Abraham at the beginning of the Bible. The righteousness of God has always been available simply through faith in God's promise of it, in Christ. And so now in chapters 5 to 8, he's begun turning to the implications, the benefits of this wonderful news that the righteousness of God that we need if we're going to live with him. What are the implications of that for daily life? He's begun to say, well, what it means is, first of all, we have peace with God now, but also that we live in hope of glory with God in the future. One day we're going to live with him. And so Christians, we, as Christians, we walk around rejoicing in our hope. We've got such a great future to look forward to. We know him now and one day we'll live with him. At which point, the cynic, the unbeliever, turns and says, what world do you live in? Aren't you human like the rest of us? Aren't you engulfed by sin and death? I don't notice that Christians aren't dying, do you? See, what about sin and death? They rule our planet where is this Christ? How can you walk around in hope when the planet is engulfed in sin and death? And so the apostle turns to address how the work of Jesus Christ 
has overcome the powers over humanity. And to do this, what he does is he goes back to right to the beginning, to Adam. And he draws out a comparison between Adam, the founder of the human race, and Christ, who has founded a new human race of believers in him. He makes a comparison between Adam and Christ. He says that basically Adam is a, what he calls here a pattern of the one to come. Adam was like a model of Jesus. Adam, the first founder of the human race, helps us understand the final founder of the human race, Christ, when he comes. So you see, Adam, if we could think about Adam and what he's brought to the human race, we can compare and contrast him with Christ. And we'll find that Christ has reversed the dreadful effects of Adam's role in the world so that we can live with hope in the future. So like most of life, it's a bit like football. After um, Wednesday night, which for all of us here who support the England team, was the, just about the depths, wasn't it? It was just the most miserable, miserable night. To think that this is our national game. We cannot even qualify to get into a regional competition. I mean, we are pathetic, aren't we? And just for a moment, let's just join with everybody else and blame poor Steve McLaren for, for a moment. It's his fault, isn't it? I mean, he's got us in this place. You know, you think to yourself, how can we get any lower? I mean, uh, England football is just on its knees. It's now down and out. And you kind of think there is no way back. Is there anybody who can reverse the effects of Steve McLaren upon the English game? Do you see the obvious parallel? You see, Paul is answering a similar question for spiritual questions. He's saying, is there any way back? Can we reverse the rule of sin and death in the world? And so he turns to this uh, comparison. And the, the passage breaks into to three sections. And uh, the first is verses 12 to 14. And we might, to summarize it, as simply saying, Adam's sin brought death. It's pretty important tonight that you cling on to the simple labels, the, the simple points, because Paul gets complicated at, at uh, various points. So cling on to the simple one. The simple thing is, Adam's sin brought death. Let's read from verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because, or, or so that all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin isn't taken into account when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who didn't sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Everything clear? <laughs> now, the point is that um, verse 12, in verse 12, the apostle begins to make a comparison between Adam and Christ. But then in verses 13 to 17, he digresses to address some important issues, and he resumes the direct comparison in verse 18. Okay? So we need to begin by understanding verse 12. Now he's talking here about our ancestor, Adam, the, the first fully human human being, the one who was first made in the image of God with a relationship with God. He was our representative ancestor. And we need to understand, first of all, that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. When our original ancestor, Adam, wherever he lived, somewhere, his bones must be buried, crushed somewhere, wherever Adam lived, he rebelled 
against God, just like we do. He rebelled against God, and he was condemned to death. And that death was both spiritual and physical. You see, when he rebelled against God, he was thrown out of God's kingdom and condemned to die. And the day that he rebelled against God, he did die spiritually. His relationship with God was broken that day. And then eventually he died physically as well. And ever since, all his uh, descendants, including us, are therefore by nature spiritually dead to God. And indeed, eventually, we die physically as well. And uh, for those of us who are Christians, we can remember what it was like when we were dead to God. Maybe some of us tonight are not yet Christians, and we know that we've been dead to God. In other words, we kind of understand the word God, but we have absolutely no relationship with him. He might as well not be there. We, we, you know, our prayers just bounce off the ceiling. What's the point of praying anyway? We live our lives without any reference to him. Because spiritually speaking, we're dead to him. Physically, we can run marathons. We look very, very successful. And that in relationship to God, there's nothing. Dead. And because of that, we sin. So all beings, all humanity has been born spiritually dead. And that results in us sinning against God. So that we deserve death just like Adam did. We are by nature spiritually dead. And the emphasis here, which I hadn't really seen before, is really upon the original death that Adam brought into the world. He then goes on to explain, because he needs to in verse 13, well, what about the law? Can you, can you really be guilty of sin before the law was given? He says, yes, before the law was given, that is between Adam and then Moses, centuries later when the law was given, sin was still in the world, and we know that, verse 14, because people still died. They didn't know the law, which would only increase their guilt. But since they all died, we can tell that they were all sinners. So you see, we're all dead because Adam was dead. Now that is uh, pretty serious, isn't it? You discover that you're not just spiritually impaired, but spiritually a corpse. I mean, that's pretty hopeless, isn't it? But it explains an awful lot, doesn't it? See, it explains like, by, like, um, why we were so hostile to God before, before God got hold of us. It explains why our friends and colleagues are so hostile. Why don't they want anything to do with him? Why don't they look at, look at us with total scorn sometimes? Why are they utterly disinterested in God? Why is the world f- so full of evil and hatred? Why is the world so full of death? Because humanity is spiritually dead to God. Not just struggling, but spiritually dead. That's quite a shock, isn't it? it it's, I imagine it's a bit like um, the first day, if you're blind, when you suddenly have been told that you're blind. I, I can't imagine what that must be like. When at some age, your parents or, or somebody takes upon them the role of explaining to you that you can't see. I mean, what is that like? I guess some here might know what that is like. There's somebody who knows what that's like. It must be a dreadful thing to discover that actually it's not, not, just, not just that you're struggling to do something, you just cannot see. And the apostle is, is making it quite clear to us. We're discovering something about our own human, human nature here. We are naturally, by nature, dead to God. Our human nature from conception through birth and into our lives is to be dead to God. That explains why the world is the way it is. So firstly, Adam's sin brought death 
to us all. Well, it sounds pretty uh, depressing. It's pretty morbid, isn't it? And, and sometimes you can't make bad news any better. It just is bad. You have to face reality. But thankfully, there's much more. Secondly, God's grace brought life. Verses 15 to 17. This is wonderful. Read with me from verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin by Adam and brought condemnation to us all. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? A lot of words. Let me try and simplify it for you. Paul is making a contrast here between Adam's sin and God's grace. The contrast is not just that Adam's trespass brought death and God's gift gives life. It's not just a contrast between gift and, uh, between uh, death and life, but also that Christ has reversed all the effects of Adam's sin. So even though Adam's one sin has led to catastrophic consequences. You think it's got totally out of control. His one sin that brought him death has brought sin and death to the whole world. You think it's just totally out of control, and yet Christ has reversed the whole thing. So that what Christ has done is much, much bigger than what Adam began to do. And so there are three points of superiority, and they come in each of the verses. Firstly, verse 15. Grace has overflowed sin. So it says, if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? It's a bit like um, uh, if, if you know the bush somewhere, perhaps uh, some of you come from South Africa or Australia or somewhere where it doesn't rain for sort of weeks on end like it does here, but, you know, dry bush. And you know that some, some guy goes out and he's an idiot and, he, and, he, and he's uh, sitting down for a cup of tea, has a fag, and then throws his fag off into the, to the grass and it catches light. And he watches in horror as this fire begins to spread and the wind takes it and whoosh, it's off across the, the, the uh, savannah. You know how you know, bushfire uh, results and there's devastation everywhere. Well, that's what sin is like, isn't it? Adam rebelled against God and now the, the, the fire is just going to swept across the whole planet. You think, it's too late, nothing could be done. But no, you see, the grace of God is like, it's like a flood so imagine a dam with waters piled up and then the dam is opened up and the flood waters just sweep across all the plains and douse out the sin. In other words, the grace of God is far more than the sin that is, uh, that is on fire. You see, it's been overflowed by the grace available in Christ. Fantastic, isn't it? Or again, verse 16, justification has overturned condemnation. So he says there, look, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation to us all. So we're all guilty of the sin of Adam. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. 
So even though the, the sin and the condemnation has spread, everyone can be justified, that is, declared righteous in God's sight. So it's like one man's sin brought condemnation to all. Like one skier might um, bring an avalanche. All right? It's changed the metaphor from fire to the, to the Alps. Seems more appropriate this time of year, doesn't it? So imagine, you know, you, you go somewhere in the Alps and it's uh, the skiing, and you know how sometimes it gets dangerous, and the signs are all up, you know, don't go skiing in this region, you know, danger of avalanches, etc., etc. And, uh, and yet some guy is absolutely determined to put his ski marks on that blank, you know, hillside. You know those kind of people? There's probably some of them here. Anyway, and what they do is they, they head off, and it's all one, and then there's a little bit of snow slips, and uh-oh, and he gets on, he gets off the other end, and there's been a little bit of snow, then it begins to gather pace. And down the valley it roars, and soon it's an enormous avalanche, and it fills the whole valley, and it buries several villages in the valley below. Yeah? One man's sin is just avalanched out of control. And that's like the condemnation of Adam's sin. You know, one man rebelled against God, brought condemnation upon, it, upon himself, but everyone descended from him is engulfed by that same condemnation. And you just think, well, there's no hope for the world. But if I may stress the, stretch the analogy even more, yeah, but the sun can melt, the sun can melt that snow. See? So as if what God has done in Christ has melted away all the condemnation. His justification, that is, the righteousness available in him, reverses the effects of the condemnation. Or thirdly, verse 17. Life in Christ has overthrown death in Adam. It's as if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, of the gift of righteousness, reign in life? So you see, death has reigned over us all these years as a terrible tyrant reigning, as a dictator governing the human race. So you see, Adam, who was meant to rule the earth, he and his descendants were meant to rule the earth for God, and instead they were ruled by death. And death has governed us ever since. But now, that tyrant has been overthrown by Christ on the cross. We've seen it made public in his resurrection. And that life is now made available to, to all. So those of us who put our faith in him will be restored to the dignity intended for Adam and will reign as the human race should reign over new creation in life, ruled by the life of Christ instead of ruled by the death of Adam. So it's a bit like uh, Gladiator. Anybody here like Gladiator? You should watch Gladiator. If you've not watched Gladiator, you should watch it. I mean, you know, even if you're of gentle disposition, it's important education. And... Um, in Gladiator, you remember what happens is that the, 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 um, the, the noble General Maximus you know, confronts the evil tyrant Caesar and they battle to the death at the end. Yeah? And when the, when the Caesar is overcome by the Gladiator, you know, Rome is returned to the, to the Senate and to the people. It's the, it's the only film my, my wife has ever made a public noise in a cinema. Um, my wife, if you know her, she's absolutely gorgeous and she's very... Um, sweet and gentle. Uh, she's Welsh, and so she would rather die than make a public noise, but we're in the cinema watching Gladiator right at the moment, and you know that bit where uh, Maximus has got the knife to the throat of the Caesar, and there's this kind of you know, dramatic moment, and my little wife you know, yells, up, yells up, top of her voice, whole cinema, Go on, kill him! <laughs> Go on, kill him! <laughs> it's kind of ru ruined the moment, really, you know. 
But you so want him to die, he's such an evil tyrant. And of course he's overthrown. Now the apostle is saying, again, the parallel is quite obvious if you think about it. The apostle is saying that the evil tyrant, death, has been overpowered by Christ. And so once death reigned and ruled over us and subjected us all to the tyranny of death, and any of us who felt the pain of bereavement, we have felt that pain and we've felt that tyranny. If not, we will. And yet that tyranny has been broken because of Christ's death, published now in his resurrection to life. So do you see the fire of sin has been flooded with grace? The avalanche of condemnation has been melted by justification. The reign of death has been overthrown by life. Christ has reversed even the extended damage of Adam. There is a new people of life led by the new Adam who is Christ. We who once were dying will now not only die, but doorway is simply, that death is simply the doorway to physical eternal life. We begin that life now in relationship with God and it will carry on through death, through death into eternity. So God's grace has brought life where Adam's sin brought death. How does that work? How does it happen? Well, very simply, thirdly and lastly, Christ's obedience brought us justification. Verses 18 to 19. Let's read verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass by Adam was condemnation for all men, all of us, so also the result of one act of righteousness by Jesus was justification that brings life for all men, the Christians. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Here the Apostle turns to draw the similarity, the parallel between Adam and Christ, in that both are representatives, and so that their behaviour affects everybody else. I've used the illustration before, but uh, forgive me. Let's cast our minds back to happier times, when England qualified for the World Cup. And if you remember in that decisive game, where David Beckham kicked the goal against Greece, that meant that we qualified for the World Cup. Does everybody remember that? I'm sure you do. Now, of course, when David Beckham kicked the ball, he was the only man who kicked the ball. But when he scored and ran around, you know, holding his shirt out and screaming at the top of his uh, voice, do you remember the, half, the whole stadium and the whole country was up in arms and we all rose as one man and we all yelled, we've scored, we've qualified. Well, most of us were nowhere near the football. Yeah? He kicked the ball, we all benefit. Now, it's like that with Adam, who was the original ancestor. He was the captain, if you like, of the human race. He was the founding individual. He was the first. And we're all descended from him. So how he behaved affects the rest of us. But there is another founder of the human race, the one of whom he was only a pattern, only a shadow, the one to come who is Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 18, we were all condemned for Adam's sin. His original sin condemns us all. It's not just that we inherit our own corrupt nature just like his, though we do. We do sin like Adam. But that Adam as our representative sinned, and since he was alienated in death, we're all born in death as well. 
we're all born spiritually dead, descended from him. And then we go and do exactly the same things that he did. In other words, he's a thoroughly good representative for us. He's just like us. That's why he's our representative. And so we're all born outside the kingdom by virtue of Adam's original sin, which is then confirmed in practice when we do the same things ourselves. Just to give you two names from church history so you can remember this. This issue was the subject of a massive theological debate between a man called Pelagius and a man called Augustine. Okay, if you don't care about these things, just have a few breaths and think. But those are two massive names. Pelagius was basically teaching that we, you know, we can, with a bit of help from God's Spirit, become good enough for God. And Augustine was saying, no, we can't, because we're condemned simply by virtue of being human. Because we are like Adam. And in Adam, we sinned. Adam sinned, so we're all guilty. So we're guilty for Adam's sin as well as being guilty for our own sin. And that's what the Bible teaches here. But thankfully, there's another founder of the human race. Verse 18. We can also be justified by Christ's righteousness. You see, Christ's one act of righteousness, that is a life of obedience, even unto death on a cross, all focused in that that climactic moment of his life where he died in our place on the cross. In that obedience... He obeyed where Adam sinned. And his representative righteousness can be counted to us all. Verse 19 explains it even more clearly. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many are made righteous. The word there means appointed or counted. In other words, reckoned or imputed. It's not to see that we become good enough to deserve heaven, because we don't. But we are counted good enough with the righteousness of Jesus. You see, it's so wonderful that Jesus has lived the Christian life that we cannot live. He's lived it for us as our representative. And his righteous life is counted as our new identity. And in him, we belong in heaven. That's why we live in hope of the world to come. I've used this illustration many times before, but I haven't used it for a little while, so there are probably lots of new people who haven't heard it. And it's the best illustration I can think of to explain how this works. It's very simple. At the end of Charles Dickens' book, The Tale of Two Cities, I'm sure many of you could tell the story with me, but at the end of that great book, set at the end of the 18th century in the French Revolution, there are two men, very similar, Charles Darnier and Sidney Carton. Charles Darnier is a charming, aristocratic man. Sidney Carton is a total rat. But the two of them love the same woman, But she, being very sensible, loves the charming aristocratic man, Charles Darnier. Unfortunately, Charles Darnier finds himself locked up in a prison in Paris, facing the guillotine. He's in the jail, facing death. His beloved back in in England grieves for him. And so Sidney Carton decides to do the one good thing he's ever done in his life. So he goes to the jail in Paris with a friend. They go to see him in the jail. And because the two men look alike, They drug Charles Darnier and swap clothes. They exchange identities. And the drugged Charles Darnier is then taken out in Sidney Carton's clothes by the other friend and then put into the carriage. And then in Sidney Carton's clothes with Sidney Carton's pass papers is then taken to the barricades around Paris and passes freely through them and heads back to England in the identity of Sidney Carton. And meanwhile, in his place, Sidney Carton in Charles Darnier's place, 
goes to his death by guillotine. You see, a simple swap took place. And that helps to illustrate what happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took our place so that we can take his. He was treated as if he was us, with our identity. And so he was killed on the cross and punished for our sin. So that we can be accepted in his identity, in the righteousness of Jesus, cross through the barricades of death and go home to be with God, in the identity of Jesus Christ. He was treated as if he was us, so that we can be treated as if we were him, righteous and acceptable in God's sight. Isn't that not fantastic? That's why we can live by hope in this world. Even though there is sin and death all around us, even though there is sin and death even within our bodies, even as we sit here tonight, we know there is selfishness within us and there is decay at work in us. We sin and we shall die. And yet we can sing our hearts out and leave here rejoicing in hope because Christ has reversed the effects of Adam in sin and death. And he has begun a new race, a new human race that reign in life on high. Now we shall join him if we put our faith in him. See, the one last question then, what about the law? Verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, his read, Paul's readers might have been saying, but wasn't the law intended to help people get saved? No, God gave the law actually to increase their awareness of sin. It made them more aware of their sin. It made them more guilty of their sin. It even provoked them to sin more. Well, why would God do that? So that grace might even be more magnificent. You see, even if their, if their sin was, was magnified by knowing the law, knowing what God expected of them, yet grace is sufficient for all of them as well. So that grace might reign through righteousness, the righteousness we have in Christ, to bring eternal life to us all through him. Well, there's one last question then. If Adam's sin brought death to the whole of humanity, does Jesus' righteousness bring justification to the whole of humanity? Well, there's only one condition. Verse 17. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace reign in life? The gift has been offered to us in Christ. It's available to us all in Christ. Whatever nation we come from, whatever background, whatever community, whatever family, whatever lifestyle we've been in, however dreadful and immoral it has been, the righteousness of God is available in Christ. If we will receive it, if we'll, if we'll accept it as the gift of God because he loves us. See, it's not effective while we leave it unreceived. If we know about it, if we understand it, if we know it's there, it's no good to us until we've accepted it for ourselves. It's like a present given to us at Christmas. It's no good unless you unwrap it. Otherwise, it just sits under the, the tree until next year. And there may be some of us here tonight who know that this gift is given for us because it's given for everybody. It's offered to anybody here this evening. But have you received it? Have we accepted the righteousness of God in Christ? Or do we think we're somehow going to be good enough ourselves? Give up and accept the gift. 
because it's given to you in Christ, because God loves you and wants you to be righteous and wants you to reign with Christ in life forever and to leave here living in hope rather than despair. And the way you do that is simply to pray to God, as we'll do in a moment, and thank him for the gift. Ask him to give us his righteousness in Christ and give us the joy of life in hope. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Just a moment of quiet while we might reflect upon whether we've ever actually asked God to give us his gift of righteousness. Let me lead us in a prayer. Dear God, it's true that this world is ruled by sin and death. Indeed, we have been under its tyranny. Thank you for explaining that Adam's sin brought death to us all, that we have been spiritually dead to you. How we praise you that in your kindness and grace you've brought life through Jesus Christ we do praise you that the fires of sin have been flooded by your grace the avalanche of condemnation has been melted by your justification the reign of death has been overpowered by the life of Christ we praise you that Christ's righteousness is available for our justification, that we might be acceptable to you in his life rather than our own. And we want to say to you this evening, dear God, please would you give us that gift of righteousness. Without it, we're lost in sin and death. But with it, we can reign in life with Jesus. And so whether for the first time tonight or for the umpteenth time, we want to again thank you for your gift of righteousness in Christ. We want to tell you that we have no other hope but him. But in him we are filled with hope that we shall burst through sin and death and live with him forever. We pray that you'll send us home full of joy tonight, that surrounded by sin and death we have hope in Christ, that we shall live one day with him and reign in life forever. We ask you to help us to understand these things more and more deeply that our joy in you might grow, that our hope in you might grow, and that you might give us opportunities to speak of it to others. And we ask it for the glory of your name alone. Amen.